0: Rabbi David Wolpe is a prolific author, dynamic public speaker, and the senior rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. One of the most articulate spokesmen for not only conservative Judaism, but also for all of Judaism. Rabbi Wolpe is frequently a television guest, has newspaper and magazine columns, such as his weekly columns at Time Magazine and the Jewish Week, and is speaking around the country and world. He was named by Newsweek as the most influential rabbi in America and by the Jerusalem Post as one of the top 50 most influential Jews in the world. He has the rare capability of expressing what many of us feel but can't put into words through his unique personal, academic, spiritual, and intellectual style. I first met Rabbi Wolpe about a decade ago at the Wexner Fellowship and I was deeply taken by his teaching style and having had the chance today to spend some time with Rabbi Wolpe again, say it was so delightful and thoughtful to spend time with such a mensch and thoughtful human being. There has been so much excitement in this community about bringing you out, and we're so grateful you finally made it. It's a great honor and pleasure to have you with us tonight. Rabbi David Wolpe.
1: So no, I'm not wearing a tie, because I came from Los Angeles, and it's forbidden there. (laughs) And I actually have a story about that. This is supposed to be a true story that when uh, Ben-Gurion went to the first Knesset meeting in Israel, he came out as he typically did, in khakis and a white shirt and no tie. And his driver said to him, Mr. Prime Minister, we're a state now. You have to wear a tie. And he said, no, I don't. Churchill told me I don't. And <laughs> he said, what do you mean, Churchill told you you don't? He said, well, when I was in London addressing the parliament, I came out without a tie, and Churchill said, uh-uh. That may fly in Jerusalem, it's okay there, but here in London you have to wear a tie. <laughs> so, I didn't know that there were all these formal people in Phoenix. But I want to thank, obviously, Rabbi yankelowitz and uh, Valley Beit Midrash and all of you and this wonderful um, institution that hosts both Valley Beit Midrash and tonight me Um, for your hospitality and kindness, and for being in relative proximity to my home so that the flight was only an hour, which is also a pleasure, as you know. Um, I want to start by saying that how we talk about things affects them very profoundly. And when we talk about faith, like anything else, you have to be very careful, and of course there is a Jewish joke that goes with this, about Mr. Goldman who was supposed to be a character witness in a trial. And the judge said to him, Mr. Goldman, first we have to establish a few facts. What's your name? He says, Shmuel Goldman. He says, and how old are you? And he goes, I'm 83, and, <laughs> and The judge says, no, 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 Mr. Goldman, just, just your age, please. He says, 83, Kenanhurra. <laughs> and the judge says, Mr. Goldman, you don't understand. This is a court of law. You have to say only what I ask you don't say anything else, just the number. He says, 83, Kinnahar. <laughs> the judge says, Mr. Goldman, if you don't answer me properly, I'm gonna to have to hold you in contempt. And the lawyer says, your honor, if you don't mind, may I ask Mr. Goldman? He says, go ahead, you ask him. He says, Mr. Goldman, how old are you, Kinnahar? He said, 83. <laughs> so how do you phrase something really does matter and part of the problem that we have as Jews is that we speak English. And so when you use words like faith or grace or love, because English is a Christian language, grew up in Christian lands, the greatest influence in English is the King James Version of the Bible, it has Christian connotations and you can't help it, it's the gospel truth. But if I say to you, God loves you, and it sounds Christian, then tell me, does it sound Christian to say, Ahava which means with a great love you have loved us. No, then it sounds Jewish, because it's in Hebrew, and we don't understand what it means, and it's fine. <laughs> but the truth is, in Hebrew, these ideas that I'm going to present when I get through all my jokes, that these ideas... They have a very powerful resonance for Jews. And the fact that we frame them in English shouldn't blind us to the reality that they are, in fact, intrinsically Jewish concepts and we are, after all, the people that gave the idea of God to the world. And so to explore what that means, wherever you are and however you define God, and that is a question for another time, But to explore those ideas, it is in our spiritual DNA. And to try to understand what it means to believe, both the problems of it and the advantages of it, that's what our people have been doing for thousands of years. And part of the way that you explore what religion does for you is by understanding, first and foremost, the way we think of human beings, of people because I was talking earlier to a group about the idea that is very prevalent in our time, and you see it in every college commencement speech, that all you have to do to live a good life is follow your heart. All you have to do is chase your dream. And I am here to tell you that that's nonsense. Not that you should never follow your heart, but hearts are complicated things, and in fact, We know that human beings are not all good. And if you think human beings are all good, I suggest to you that you visit a playground. Because there you will see what happens when a new child comes to the playground. Do the other kids go, oh, look, a new child. Let us share our toys with him. No, they say, get the new kid. Because we're split and riven and all of us struggle all the time, and that's what it means to be human. You're not getting it wrong because you struggle. You may think that Jews confess once a year. I am here to give you the perhaps discouraging news that if you pray in the morning, there is a confessional in every morning service, not only on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is just the culmination. And there's a confessional in every morning service because Judaism assumes you will sin every day. And if you don't, it's because you're not paying attention. (laughs) Heschel once was approached by a man who said, you know, I don't really need God. I don't really need synagogue. I'm a pretty good person. And Heschel, who was, after all, an extraordinarily sensitive ethical soul, said, you're very lucky. I'm not so good. I'm always saying the wrong thing. I'm always doing the wrong thing. I'm always hurting people when I don't mean to, by my silence, by my speech. I need synagogue and I need God. That's a Jewish view. The Jewish view is that this is hard, this stuff. You know, just today, I I, I never thought I would start a sentence this way, but I'm about to. Just today, I tweeted, Um, (laughs) but I did. A quote from the great writer Anton Chekhov. He said, Handling a crisis is easy. It's the day-to-day living that'll kill you. Being good day-to-day is hard because we are split and we are riven and we do have different drives inside of us and part of what faith seeks to do in the Jewish tradition is to teach us better how to be and it is a constant battle with ourselves a struggle for growth. And that's part of what we have to understand when we realize that Judaism is a religious family. It's a religious family because to say, I feel spiritual, costs you nothing. But to live well takes work. And Judaism has never been about how you feel alone. How you feel matters, don't get me wrong. But it's always been about the way in which emotions gets translated into action. And in that sense, by the way, has a much more realistic, healthier, and deeper definition of love than exists in American romantic thought. Love is not what you feel. Love is an enacted emotion. If I tell you I love you, and I treat you like dirt, I don't love you. I may have feelings, but that's not love. Love is an enacted emotion. And in order to enact love well, you actually have to learn how to do it. It doesn't only come naturally. Part of it obviously comes naturally. But you really have to learn. That's one of the reasons why our children teach us how to love. A couple of years ago, I was driving my daughter, who is now 18, but but got her smart mouth early. Uh, And I was driving my daughter, and and I don't remember what we were talking about, but I wanted to say something I really wanted her to pay attention to, as opposed to most of the things that I say to her. And I said, you know how sometimes your father says something that actually really matters and is worth remembering? And she said, not as often as he thinks. So, But, but the, reason, the reason that other people teach us how to love, spouses, lovers, children, parents, siblings, is because you do have to learn. Love is an educative process as well, and Judaism is in part a tradition that educates you in how to love. And the fundamental faith, when we talk about why faith matters, the fundamental faith of the Jew is that this matters, that life is not empty and it's not purposeless. purposeless. And that when you cry, it's not a cry to a deaf cosmos. And when you grow your soul, that's why you're here and it matters that you do that. And you're supposed to return your soul better, deeper, more burnished than it was given. It is faith that gives that color to life and it's not always easy to believe it. It isn't always easy. Sometimes when you look at the pain that exists in the world, it seems as though it's not possible that it matters. It's why Rabbi Nachman used to say that the greatest sin was despair. Because despair is truly faithlessness. But faith means that what it is that you do and how you live and what you teach, it really matters at every moment in your life. In fact, even and sometimes especially at the end of your life. Each week, I study Torah with somebody who's about to turn 98 years old, and he tells me that the reason he's not afraid of death is not because he's 98, but because he remembers holding his mother's hand as she was dying and she said, don't be afraid because this happens to every human being. Sometimes at those moments you have your most powerful teaching moments when you feel most powerless and that faith that that chain matters generation to generation that's part of the fundamental faith of the Jew and also I think it's part of the fundamental faith of anybody who has some sense of and and I almost don't want to use the word God because I know it is so freighted with so many different associations, but let me give you my religion test. You're a religious person if you believe that at the heart of the universe there is a mystery, not a puzzle, a puzzle is something you can figure out if you're smart enough, but a mystery. And if you believe that there is something unfigureoutable at the heart of this, a mystery, then you have the neshama of a religious person, the soul of a religious person. Now what that mystery is, we can spend the rest of our lives arguing about, discovering, and what you think it is today may change tomorrow. But Judaism is a tradition, the oldest continuous tradition of soul growth known to humanity, that believes that there is a mystery at the heart of things and that you can live in consonance with that mystery. That there are ways of living that are more in harmony with that mystery or less so. And that, while it may seem like a minimalist definition of faith, it's a very real one and makes a difference to how we live and what we do. It's easy to overlook these things that seem very simple. But we overlook simple things all the time. I'll tell you, I'll pause for my next joke. <laughs> Only because I just told this on the high holidays and I, it came with, what happened was, all right, I will, I will give you the backstory to this because I know you're dying to hear the backstory. I went to a conference, what happened was I went to a conference with my brother Uh, My brother organized a conference. My brother is the the director of the Ethics Center at Emory University, and he organized a big bioethics conference, so I went there to support him. And at the hotel, there was was a hotel in Atlanta, and there was a bank of of elevators, but there were two conferences converging at once, and the, the hotel was basically overrun. They couldn't handle it. So the elevators took a very long time. And like many hotels, you know, one side you go to these floors and the other side you only go to those floors. So you couldn't even get to your room if, you, if only the, the wrong elevators were available. Anyway, so I finally got to my brother's room. He was on the, on the top floor because that was the nerve center of the conference. So we go back out to go down and we're waiting forever. And there, there are six elevators there and we're waiting forever. And finally I said, oh, you know, this hotel does not have enough elevators. And he says, no, it doesn't. I said, and not only that, but these elevators don't even all go to this floor. And he said, yeah, I think these do.
0: <laughs>
1: so we, 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 like, we fell into hopeless, uncontrollable laughter, and I told his wife, my sister-in-law, and she told me that her brother, who became a Navy SEAL, When he was going through his final training, he was walking around with his commanding officer through the Pentagon, and they were walking around looking at different offices, and at a certain point, his commanding officer stops and says, now you understand the structure of this building, right? And her brother said, yes, it's an octagon. (laughs) And he said, no, it's a pentagon. And this got me thinking to why it is that people miss obvious things and say things that are clearly stupid. <laughs> but. And so the joke is that, that Holmes <clears throat> took Watson on a camping trip. And the two of them were lying there in the middle of the night and Holmes was looking up at the stars and he wakes Watson up and he goes, Watson, what do you observe? And Watson knew this was a test because after all Sherlock Holmes. And he says, Well, I see in that corner there's a shooting star. Uh, there's a trail of a star, which means there was a shooting star there, and I see the constellation of Orion. and I see the moon as a gibbous moon. It's probably getting larger, which means we're at the beginning of the month and not the end of the month. Why, Holmes? What do you observe? says Watson, feeling very proud of himself. And Holmes says, I observed that while we were sleeping, someone stole the tent. <laughs> now, These kinds of simple, of simple but overlooked observations, we do them even about deeper things. Like, yes, it's very nice to feel spiritual, but unless it actually has a practical difference in your life, it means nothing. It means nothing. Yes, Judaism is full of rules, but the reason it's full of rules is because life is hard. It's not easy. Not if you pay attention and you do it right. The reason that we have all the systems that we have over thousands of years is because people have discovered that when we brush up against one another, we almost invariably both do damage and do beautiful things. The philosopher Schopenhauer said people are like porcupines. They huddle together for warmth and then their quills penetrate each other and then they move apart again and then they huddle back together for warmth and we all have this feeling. And we all know that in fact ultimately the struggle is not only in community but it's with each within each individual soul and We know people who have stopped growing and people who wanna keep growing. And that faith, that bottom line faith that it does matter and you have to pay attention, and we do get it wrong, and we do make mistakes, that's the way Jews look at the world. I've said that Shimon Peres always likes to say that the great contribution of the Jews to the world is dissatisfaction but it's a certain kind of dissatisfaction. It doesn't mean, oh, I got the wrong seat and the wrong parking space. It means that the world is not what it should be, and we have to make it better. And the belief that you have to make it better is itself a kind of faith. Now, I know that religion has a bad name in the world today, but the truth is, that religion does much more good than harm, except that most of the good that it does, people don't pay attention to. Do you know what the biggest world aid organization is in the United States? It's not UNICEF. It's not CARE. It's called World Vision. It's an evangelical organization out of Seattle. Now, does anyone know about it? No, I mean, I suppose some people do, but most people don't. But why, I remember when I went to Haiti to help a friend of mine who was rebuilding an orphanage. And I went, I was sitting next to this guy and I said to him, so what are you doing in Haiti? He says, well, I've been here for about 20 years. Why are you here? Because uh, members of my church are rebuilding homes in the suburbs of Port-au-Prince. For 20 years, I said, you've been doing this? He says, yeah, I followed my son. He came 25 years ago. Why are you doing this, I said. And his answer was, God wants me to." Those people don't make the news. But that sense that you're supposed to be doing good in this world, that's a deeply religious sense. I know that the the counter to that will be that people say religion causes war, but let me just, religion does not cause war. Religion can be a contributing factor, but it's very rare that someone says, oh, you know what, there are people across the globe who believe something different from us, let's go get them. No, it's always there's a struggle over land, there's a struggle over resources, there's a struggle over power, and religion is an additional factor. That's true. But still remember, as bad as some of the religious questions are now, remember that the great wars of recent history, World War I, World War II, before that the Napoleonic Wars, none of them were religious wars. They weren't and they were the most destructive wars of history. People will fight. The cause of war is human nature. The cause of war is that people will struggle with each other, and religion is the only principle that tells people why they should all see each other as sisters and brothers. If you say we're all children of God, then you've got a principle that should work, now it doesn't always work because people like to be divided into groups and in groups and out groups. But they will do that with everything, with nations, with religion, with races, with genders. People are divisive and religion gives them another reason but it also gives them a reason to overcome it. And that's true, by the way, in Judaism as well. Think about this, you want to, people think of Judaism is parochial. Judaism is not parochial. In fact, there are even indications that Judaism is the most universalistic of faiths. Do you know when the the Christian calendar starts? With Jesus. The Muslim calendar starts with the journey of Muhammad. The Greek calendar started with the Olympic Games. When does the Jewish calendar start? With the creation of the world. It doesn't start with Abraham. It's a universal faith. A lot of our stereotypes about Judaism would be contradicted if we knew Judaism. I know that people say that Jews are over concerned with money, but Judaism is the only faith that I know of and maybe the only faith in the world where there's one out of seven days during the week when if you follow Jewish law you're not even allowed to touch money, much less make it. In other words, in religion itself is the cure for the ills that religion is sometimes said to cause. And the other point about faith is that faith addresses, true or not is a separate question, but faith addresses the central existential dilemmas of human beings, and they are two. The first one is the first thing that the Bible says about human nature. This is a good trivia question if you don't know. What's the first thing, other than that we're created in the image of God, which isn't so much about human nature, it's about our essence as creation, but what's the first comment And also, the first thing that's called not good in the Bible. Thank you. It is not good for a person to be alone. The first existential dilemma is human loneliness. Because you are alone. You don't need me to bring you this news, but I will. I mean, think about it. You wake up in the morning. Thousands of thoughts go through your head. Dreams, fragments of thoughts, things you observe, things you think about, memories that you have, ideas that you have for the future. You come home and someone says, How is your day? You say, fine. <laughs> Most of what goes on inside you only goes on inside you. And even though we reach out for one another and we share with one another, there is a sense in which we are ultimately alone and yet a believer is never alone. We call God Yodea mach Shavot, the one who knows our thoughts. And for a believer, that's not a bad thing, that's not a scary thing, that's a comforting thing. I'm not alone in here. And of course, the other great existential dilemma is not only that we're alone, but that we are temporary. That we won't be here forever. And that is the greatest fear and the greatest anguish and the greatest puzzlement And yet, if you're a believer, it doesn't mean that you're somewhere up in heaven. You know, Mark Twain said that people think of heaven as you lie on a green field and you listen to harp music. He says you wouldn't want to do it for five minutes while you're alive, but you think you'll be happy for the rest of eternity doing it after you die. That's not what an afterlife means. An afterlife is something fundamentally inexplicable, just like you couldn't have imagined this world before you came into it. Right? You wouldn't have imagined like mountains and synagogues and tuna fish and eyes and words, and who could imagine it? You can't imagine what another life must be like. It is though a faith that there is something essential in a human being that doesn't disappear. Whatever that is. Whatever that is. It's a belief that the world is not only, as the, as the great scientist J.B.S. Haldane once said, is not only queerer than we suppose, but it's queerer than we can suppose. That we couldn't possibly begin to understand how strange this world is and what it holds for us. It is a statement that we should not be deceived by our senses to think that the only thing that's real is stuff. Since after all, right now, we're demonstrating something very real that is no stuff. Words are insubstantial, completely insubstantial. They have no physical reality at all. What's a word? You can't point to a word. And yet, I'm making sounds, and somehow something is happening inside of me. Non-physical processes are all around us, just like the stars that Watson and Holmes see. They're all around us, and yet we ignore the fact that non-physical processes are part of our experience and we assume that only physical things are real. But faith is that the non-physical is real, that the non-physical is powerful, and ultimately, of course, the Jewish statement to the world is the non-physical is greater, the greater reality than that which you can see and touch and feel. doesn't mean the world is an illusion. Jews don't think that. Jews don't think the world is an illusion. But they think that it's not all. That there is more. And that's what we mean by faith. Now you and I both know that that doesn't mean that if you're a believer, all your problems are now solved. All you have to do with anything, if you think it will solve your problems, whatever it is, whether it's wealth, or a good job, or getting married, or having children, or having faith, all you have to do to know that it won't solve your problems is look at people who already have it. Because it doesn't matter what it is you think will make you happy, you can find people who have it who are unhappy. Always, always. But, but it does address the central questions of life and that is a start to growth, which is, after all, you should excuse me, a better goal than happiness. And is more likely to make you happy than pursuing happiness. Sometimes when I marry couples, I say to them, if it's true, that they did something smart. Instead of trying to find someone who made them happy, they found someone who would make them better. And if you find someone who makes you better, you'll be happy because we do have this impulse. The Talmud has a beautiful statement, semi-mystical statement. It says, behind every blade of grass is an angel that whispers, grow. So if there's an angel behind every blade of grass, imagine what there must be behind us. And that growth, that's also, it loops right back to the idea that faith means that we are encouraged to be more and be better. So, I just wanna say one more thing, and then close with a story, and then we'll have the opportunity to talk to one another, but, one of the things that I think happens to people far too often, is that religious education happens until an age at which, and and stops at ages at which you can't really understand what religion is about. In other words, at 13, if you stop your Jewish education, then you have learned as much about Judaism as you've learned about life at 13. And if you think about the difference between where you are now and where you were then, if your Jewish education stopped then, I can honestly say you don't know anything about what Judaism is really about. Because we couldn't talk to you about it when you were 13. You weren't ready to hear it. We're gonna talk about the existential dilemmas of loneliness and death to a (laughs) 13-year-old. Try it, it doesn't fly. But I'll tell you what we do say to 13-year-olds that adults should hear too. And I say this all the time to kids. I say to 13-year-olds, when, when you were two, could you have understood what it is to be 13? And they'll say no. How can a two-year-old, a two-year-old doesn't only, not only does a two-year-old not know what it is to be 13, a two-year-old doesn't know what they don't know. Now I said the difference in the Jewish tradition between God and human beings is far greater than the difference between a 13-year-old and a 2-year-old. So anybody who tells you what God's like, realize that we can't begin to understand that which is infinitely greater than ourselves. We're still working on us. I don't know about you. I don't know what I'm like, much less what God's like. We are mysteries to ourselves. Novalis, the German poet, said that beautifully. He said, inward goes the way full of mystery." So if we're mysteries to ourselves, we certainly can't understand what divinity is. But here's what we try to do, and I'm going to close with a good Jewish story that you should know, and then we'll have a chance to talk. So I mentioned the afterlife. I want to return to it for a second. (laughs) I'd like to return to it for a long time. But um, (laughs) as you may know, Judaism doesn't exactly have a concept of heaven and hell the way it's depicted in common literature, but there is a Jewish word for hell and that word is Gehenna. What you may not know is that Gehenna is a real place. It is a valley outside the walls of Jerusalem, Gehenom, outside the walls of Jerusalem and in ancient times Canaanites sacrificed their children in that valley. And that's why when Jews came to Israel and saw that, they called the place Hell. They gave that name to that place. We've even unearthed altars in that place, human altars designed for human sacrifice. So about 20, 25 years ago, some Israeli archaeologists were excavating in Gehenna, in Hell. And there they found the oldest bits of Torah that exist in the world. They found two rolled-up silver amulets. And they spent a long time with all sorts of chemical appliances, gradually unrolling them so that they could read it. These, these bits of Torah are some... I mean, it was with, from the destruction of the first temple. So we're talking about 586 or 7 BCE, which means they're 600, 700 years older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you know what the oldest bit of Torah we have is? It read... May God bless you and keep you. May God's countenance shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God be with you and grant you peace. Which means that the oldest bit of Torah that the Jewish people have is a blessing of peace snatched from hell. That's our oldest blessing. That's why faith matters. That's what we're here to do. That's why we have to care when there is pain and suffering and torment and catastrophe anywhere in the world. And that's why we're not allowed to turn away. Our ancestors didn't, and we can't. We can struggle with faith, we can fight about it, but ultimately, ultimately, We have to remember that blessing and where it came from and understand that it guides our lives too. Because after all, if faith matters, we were put here for a reason. And the reason is to make the world a little bit better for those who come after us. Thank you.
0: rather than short questions. So if you are to um, get a short question, please raise your hand and I will move the way over to you.
1: I wasn't, I wasn't talking about why God gave the Torah at Sinai. I was talking about essentially whether God, whether the idea of God and the idea of faith matters in human life. But here's what I would say. Um, if I, what's, what's a good analogy? I'm trying to think of an analogy, and I'll, I'll see if one, if one works. If I, let's say, build um, a different kind of building. Let's say I build... Uh, a synagogue like this, and no one has ever seen a synagogue like this before, and then all these people build it around me, then someone's going to come into my synagogue and say, it seems unoriginal. But I have the right to say, yeah, it's unoriginal now because everyone else is doing it, but actually when I built it, it was the only one. So the same thing's true here. Yes, that presentation is universal, but not to put too fine a point on it, we had it first. Um, So when Jews first said it, It was so original that the rest of the world thought we were crazy, Uh, and that's still true for some of the world. But but you're right in the sense that I was talking much more about the idea of God and what that does for one's life than I was about specifically mitzvot. So.
0: I was most intrigued by your comments about uh, the overall benefits of religion as opposed to the negative aspects. And you said it in three great wars, World War I, World War II, and the Napoleonic Wars, which you stated were not really origin. Has your viewpoint changed at all? Because this is a, as I look to our world today, and what I see particularly in Middle East, ISIS as well, uh, there's, theres I, don't, I think it's undeniable that there's a religious overtone to a lot of this and violence, etc. and I feel although I, perhaps you didn't address that issue. Well, I
1: did say that, actually, um, but, I, but maybe not in, a, in, in as much detail as I could have. I said, of course, it's a contributing factor, but it's a contributing factor, again, always with people who are struggling over other things, too. Right? What does ISIS want to do? It wants to take over. It wants power. It's not just that ISIS says, you know what, we gotta wipe those guys out because they believe other than we do. It's also that they control the resources and they control the people and they, I mean, it's ISIS, why is ISIS not marching into, I don't know, uh, marching into Bombay? Is it because they can't or is it because right now Bombay isn't taking anything they need? I mean, there's always a, a, an immediate cause as well as a secondary cause. And religion can be a secondary cause without question. Look, the same thing's true with the West. We think, why, when we talk about how um, terrorists hate the United States, why do they hate the United States and they don't hate Fiji? (laughs) Because we have power and we have wealth and we have influence and we have things that they want. And those universal human desires get translated sometimes into religious terms without a question. But what I'm saying is prior to that is, there's universal human desires. Now, um, the, the the thing, and, and by the way, one of the ways that you see this is, Muslims kill many more Muslims than they kill non-Muslims. And one of the, and that's not only true Shiite Sunni, it's Sunni, Sunni, it's, I mean, it, it's, this human conflict has, and and you can see this, by the way, um, I mean, it, it is both, When it became economically disadvantageous for Protestants and Catholics to kill each other, they stopped killing each other. What, are they no longer different religions? No, they're still Protestants and Catholics, but guess what? It no longer made sense, it wasn't any, so all of a sudden the religious motivation disappeared. And so that's what I'm saying is it's never, that's never sufficient. It's it's in the mix, but it's never sufficient. The one thing I didn't say, which I know you're wondering about, um, I'm not, but, is the other the other part of why religion is good for you, which I, I didn't go into, but I will for a second, is people in religious communities live longer, are healthier, tend to be more civically active, they vote more often, um, They contribute more to both religion and non-religious causes, that is if you're a member of a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, you are more likely to give money to non-religious causes than if you're not. It makes people better, just on a a general level. You're more likely, I mean there are all sorts of statistics, you're more likely to, um, to not only be healthier, you're more likely to see doctors more often, that is for regular checkups. You're more likely to do all the things that we think of as good citizenship and, and you're much more likely to take care of people in community. You all know this. I mean, I, I'm sure this happens all the time in every synagogue. I, I know of families in my synagogue that have been taken care of by other families for decades. Because that's what, pe- that's what people in a religious community do for each other. And, and the people who don't have that don't realize, just don't realize how much that's part of the DNA of the way communities work. So I wanted to just throw that into
0: it. Right, well, in your model of faith, I primarily heard you say that everything matters, and thus we must exercise leadership. We must actually engage in the world as citizens, as Jews, as humans. In your faith model, is there a place for passivity? The place where I cannot act? The area where I, I, I don't, not only don't know the answer, but I'm out of control? And what does faith look like that?
1: So can I answer facing them as opposed to facing? Okay. Um, there are two great, I would say, two great religious models that e- all of them they exist in every tradition. One is this struggle model, which was the model I was talking about, and the other is acceptance. You know, accept the things I cannot change. The Reinhold Niebuhr AA um, prayer. So. Certainly, acceptance exists in the Jewish tradition. There's no question about it. There is no look. Am I? If you want to hear, and you'll hear a little bit, at least some of the stuff that I was talking about now. But also, I talked about the acceptance model of death in my yom kippur. All my sermons are online. They're all you can get them through the synagogue or through Facebook or whatever. Um, But uh, I talked about the acceptance model of death that at a certain point, it. I've. I know people who stop struggling, and that there are good Jewish models for that it's not true, that struggling against death. I talked about the Dylan Thomas poem, you know, Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. That's a young man's poem. He wrote it when he was 19. Yeah. Um, So yes, there is certainly a place for acceptance, and there certainly have been in the Jewish tradition models of that, partly because sometimes you can't help, or you don't know what to do to help, or you just feel as though you're overwhelmed but I think that the predominant model is still a model of engagement. So I, while not belittling one, I think that, uh, that, uh, that acceptance has to come, I, I would say acceptance is a certain piece that does not relieve you from responsibility. Um, it just allows you a certain peace. As my friend Joseph Epstein says, he says, I know lucky Jews and I know successful Jews, I know very few serene Jews. <laughs> he's also, he's the author of the best single line about Jews I have ever heard. I have to tell you this, Joseph Epstein, I have to give him credit. He said, Jews don't listen, they wait. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. walking.
0: It was quite an interesting lecture. My question is that in Judaism, um, what we are
1: um, basically instructed is to act. You know, we are not a religion of just faith. We're talking about Mm -hmm. Mm faith, but it's not
0: enough. Mm -hmm. Versus Christianity, if you believe, then you're Mm -hmm. saying...
1: Well, some versions of Christianity, yeah, okay. In Judaism, that's not a
0: So can you please tell us the difference between, you know, just accepting the faith or
1: is somebody... An you know, okay Jew without the faith but the action, is, is that one of so, the questions? So, the question was, if, if Judaism places an emphasis on action, are you a good Jew if you act even though you don't have faith? First of all, I, fortunately it is not my job to pronounce on who's a good Jew and who's not. Um, I have my opinions. No, I... <laughs> I couldn't resist. Um, but... I mean, because I, you think about it, and I've, I've had this discussion, for example, with, uh, with Jews who insist that, that you have to be, for example, Shomir Mitzvot, to be considered a good Jew, and I say, well, that leaves out Herzl, um, who seemed to me, actually, all things considered, a pretty, a pretty good Jew, um, even though I don't think he ever put Phil in on in his life. Our, our tent is wide. Um, what I would say is this, though, and this is true of Herzl, among others, If you don't act, the chances that your Judaism will be transmissible are very small. So you may live a good life, but the chances that it will be caught by your children are very small. And children tend more to to pay attention to what their parents do, as we all do, than what they believe or say. And in that sense, I would say of the two, action is probably more impactful than belief without action. Um, so, and also Judaism is a system that takes the way people behave very seriously. Um, that's why it says in the Talmud several times, all the righteous of the nations have a place in the world to come. And how do you define righteous? Not by what they believe, it's by what they do.
0: As a teacher, What would you recommend to keep the
1: youth of Judaism to continue being Jews and not stray? So what would I recommend to keep the youth of Judaism continue to be Jews? Um, The first thing that I would recommend is for their parents and grandparents to be more Jewish. Because my experience when someone, not you, when someone asks that question, they mean how can I get them to do things without actually changing the way I behave at all. But I have seen grandparents who suddenly decided to keep kosher, and it seems to me to have a much more powerful effect on their grandchildren than telling their grandchildren to keep kosher. I've seen grandparents who decide to go to synagogue, and chances are sooner or later the grandchild might go with them, whereas if they don't go, the grandchild won't. So the best thing you can do for those you want to influence is change your life. The second thing is that you recognize that uh, that the only way to create a counterculture and Judaism is a counterculture in America is through intensive education. Jewish day schools, Jewish summer camps, trips to Israel, it takes all of that. It takes time, it takes money, it takes care. Without that, not impossible, but your chances are much less. With that, don't get me wrong, you can raise a kid and give them everything, and they may, in fact, grow up and decide to abandon Judaism entirely, and that's because children grow up to be people. And people make their own decisions, as all of us have made our own decisions, right? But but your your odds are considerably increased if you give them a deeply rooted Jewish education. So if you haven't given your kids a Jewish education, I mean, understand, understand the, the message that for at least a generation people would give their kids. They would say, look, we want you to go to the best schools, live in the best neighborhoods, work at the best law firms, um, become the best in, in business, but don't fall in love. Only fall in love with the people we designate. Well, that's much too nuanced a message for anybody to get. So, if you're very active in the Jewish community and your kids meet other Jewish kids and they go to Jewish summer camp and so on, you have a much better chance. Uh, Absent that, I don't think our chances are so great. So, first of all, it, I would say at least part of what you want to think about is what what you want to learn. There's so much, okay, that's on on the internet, that is in books. Um, the easiest way is maybe to listen to sermons or lectures or talks that are on the internet because. If you don't have access to, if you don't go to a Jewish school now, for example, if you go Sunday but you don't go during the week, or you don't have a chance to go to a Jewish summer camp, then what you have to do is bring Judaism to you since you can't necessarily go to Judaism. And that's how you do it. You can, with one click, right now, you, an eight-year-old in Phoenix, with one click can get more Jewish information, more learning, more lectures than 50 years ago. The most learned Jew had at his fingertips in the most Jewish city in the world. So anything you want is there. All you need is what you already have, which is the desire to learn it.